You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual Let's get this out of the way first. I still haven't seen Fifty Shades of Grey. I'll get around to it. I think I am going to go see it at some point, but I still haven't scrounged up the time. What I've been doing is laying in bed, being very, very sick, and watching a lot of cable news. And anyone who's been watching a lot of cable news over the last week has been treated to the site. I guess not really a treat. Been forced to endure the site of Rudy Giuliani explaining – His remarks about the president of the United States, Rudy Giuliani, at a fundraising dinner in New York City, where Scott Walker, the horrible governor of Wisconsin, who will be running against many, many horrible people for the Republican nomination in 2016, Giuliani said of the president, I do not believe that the president loves America. He doesn't love you and he doesn't love me. He wasn't brought up the way you were brought up and I was brought up through love of this country. This has resulted in much uh, mishigas and bullshit and some of it hilarious. It turns out that Rudy Giuliani was brought up by somebody who's involved in organized crime who went to prison, who was a draft dodger. Rudy Giuliani himself got six or seven or eight or 12 deferments during the Vietnam War. So, and Barack Obama was raised by primarily his grandparents, one of whom landed at Normandy. So let's ask ourselves quickly, who was brought up by somebody with a love of country? More likely brought up by somebody with a true love of country, Rudy Giuliani with the draft-dodging criminal felon parent or Barack Obama with the loving mom, the absent dad, and the greatest generation World War II landed at Normandy hero, grandpa, stand-in dad. Giuliani's comments have, has led to much ridiculousness, uh, including my inarticulateness at this moment, but it's really the cold medicines that are making me this way, including yesterday in the New York Times, Monday morning, an article in the national section detailing all the times that Barack Obama has said that he loves America because we are an infantile country uh, or maybe just a country with many, many infants in it. I don't consider myself one of them. I can remember – this is how old I am. I hate to date myself. I remember Nixon. I think I was four or five. I remember fucking Richard Nixon. I remember Gerald Ford. I remember Jimmy Carter, Ronald Reagan, Bush one, Clinton, Bush two, and Obama. And it never once occurred to me to ask myself, does the president love me? Because I'm a grown-up. And But let's wrestle with this question. Who loves America? I love America. But I'm Polly. I also love Canada. And I fell in love with Germany in my 20s, and I still love Germany, and I go back as often as I can. I, I, I love Australia, which is a wonderful country I visited on two occasions. It's hard to get to, so to get there twice uh, was a real slog, but worth it. Australia is a lovely country full of lovely people. But I guess I'm poly that way. The, the right-wing harpy scolds nutbags are screaming and yelling that Obama has, as president, criticized America. And this is something that you don't do if you're truly besotted with this country, which is complete and total bullshit. As anyone who's listened to the soundtrack of Avenue Q, a wonderful musical, can tell you there's a beautiful song in there called The More You Love Someone, The More You Want to Kill Them. The more you love someone, the more they're making you cry. 
But what the right is positing, of course, but only for Democrats, because right-wingers are constantly criticizing this country. They hate women having access to birth control, kind of an American thing. They hate the Supreme Court's decision on abortion. They hate saggy pants. They hate rap music. They hate gay people getting married. They hate gay people existing. They hate lots of things about America and they criticize lots of things about America. What they don't like, what they say they don't like is that Obama, he criticizes America. But I'm sorry, if you love someone or something or some country, you want it to be its best self. So the things that drive you crazy, the things where that person or that entity, that country falls short, are more galling the more in love with them you are. So the racism, the gutting of the Voting Rights Act, the attacks on women's access to health care, to birth control, to abortion, to contraception, women making less than men make, doing the same job, queer people being oppressed, lesbian, gay, bi, and trans people, trans women of color being murdered, all these places, all these things where we fall short make us crazy. Incarceration rates, the prison state, racism, sexism, homophobia, anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, and Fox News, all these things about the country that are shitty, we hate, and would like to see embittered. Not because we hate America, but because we love America and we want to create through discourse and dialogue and politics a more perfect union. It's right there in our nation's founding documents as Charles Blow points out in his column in the New York Times on Monday. This sense that America was a project and an imperfect one and that we have a constitution that has built into it mechanisms where we can make changes. Because shit ain't perfect. Those slave owners who wrote the Constitution seem to be aware of it on some subconscious level. Never kind of pierced their consciousness. But subconsciously on some level, as they were writing that three-fifths of a man shit into our nation's founding documents, they got it. Not perfect. In need of embetterment and improvement. And to love requires to criticize. That's how I spent my weekend looking at Rudy Giuliani's face on my television. I suffered at least as much as Anastasia has suffered in Fifty Shades of Grey. I had my own S&M scene all weekend long with CNN and MSNBC. I hope this week to finally make it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to jump in. I'm going to see Fifty Shades. And I'll probably rant about it at the top of next week's show. Okay, coming up on this week's magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, Amy Muse, sex researcher extraordinaire, is here to talk about sexual communal strength, a.k.a. being GGG for each other. Plenty of your calls on the micro and the magnum editions. All that coming up right now. Hi, Dan. 24-year-old straight female, and I have a question about this guy that I've gone on a couple dates with. I am an amputee missing both my left hand and foot, and... I've only been on two dates with him, and he mentioned to me that we're going out to dinner with his brother, that he was going to mention to his brother uh, that I am missing my left hand. And um, at the time when he asked me if that was okay, I was pretty busy, so I just said sure and got on with my work. But when I started to think about it, it kind of made me feel like he was warning his brother or something that I'm missing my hand which I feel like with most people, I don't need to be warned about. So maybe his brother has an issue or something, but I feel like if that's the way he feels about me, I obviously need to talk to him about it. And if it isn't an issue with his brother, he just felt that way. Am I obligated to tell him the truth? 
explain that this is not the way most amputees want to be talked about? Or should I just do, sorry, this isn't quite working out? This isn't working out seems like a bit of an overreaction to what is most likely a sensitivity misfire. He was trying to perhaps protect you or to do the right thing and stumbled into doing the wrong thing, as uh, many people, when they first encounter somebody with a physical disability, might do. You know, he's trying to be really sensitive and his conspicuous display of sensitivity was, ta-da-ta-da, insensitive. So what do you do with that? I don't think cutting and running is the, the, the right response. I think staying and educating is and perhaps benefit of the doubting. And I realize now I'm speaking to someone who's very sensitive and it just occurred to me that I said cut and run to an amputee who's missing a foot and I apologize for that. That just flew out of my mouth. Without thinking, that's sometimes how people are, as I just was and as he may have been. And I would hope you would give me the benefit of the doubt and not assume that I used that expression in- intentionally or maliciously. I didn't. It was an accident, and I apologize in advance of you getting upset with me. And I think you should give him the benefit of the doubt and allow him to apologize if this indeed hurts your feelings. He may have assumed that, as some people with physical disabilities will express online and other places, that that moment when they're with somebody for the first time and they meet somebody for the first time and that person clocks their disability, it registers, their eyes go wide, they take it in, that they find that very dehumanizing and annoying and it makes them feel like all the person can see, at least at first, is their disability. And he may have been trying to get out in front of that with his brother and give him a little heads up so that he didn't do that wide-eyed clocking that of your disability that many people with disabilities have expressed annoyance with. So it may have been a little bit of misplaced chivalry and effort to protect you when you don't need that kind of protection. And in fact, it made you feel as if all he could see about you was your disability and that he was drawing attention to it before you met someone close to him. So I would, if I were you, go to him, express how you feel about it and see what he has to say. And if he leads with, I'm sorry, and I was trying to protect you and you counter with, apology accepted, you don't have to protect me. I can protect me. I've been living with this for a lot longer than you've been dating this. So leave it to me to handle this and how other people perceive me and take me in upon first meeting. Okay. And then if he does that going forward, awesome. He learned an important lesson, whether you guys are together forever or whether he goes on to date other women, perhaps other women with other disabilities, lesson learned. And you have done a service to all the other people out there that he may date in the future who may have an issue that he now knows not to get out in front of and to let them handle. Hi, Dan. I'm caught between a rock and a hard place. My 22-year-old sister-in-law who works on a cruise ship with her boyfriend got pregnant and is coming home on Monday to get an abortion. I have no quarrels with this. I'm pro-choice. This is not the issue. She came to my wife and I for help, uh, and I was really appreciative of that. We agreed to keep it a secret and that she could crash at our place for the week, and uh, we made plans to go to the women's clinic nearby. We we're going to hide it from her parents because her parents are a little bit uh, controlling. Uh, after we need these plans, however, uh, to, you know, find a women's clinic and I jumped through a bunch of hoops to make sure because she can't make calls from the cruise ship. She ended up telling her parents that she had a cyst and that she wanted to go home to her own bed uh, and have her parents pay for her flights um, and food and whatnot. And that she was going to surprise them uh, and that, you know, she was coming home for a fake visit. Uh, and for her mom not to worry and that it's just a cyst and that myself and my wife are going to be taking care of her for that day. 
naturally, her mom became super suspicious. Uh, she started asking a bunch of questions. Uh, and basically, uh, we got pulled into a proverbial closet with her because of this whole ordeal. So my question is, should I even bother helping her with this lie or should I just try to tell her to tell the truth? Is it fair for me to be like to refuse to be dragged in the closet uh, just so that I'm protecting her feces from her parents? So I'm kind of torn. I don't know how to feel. And uh, I'd sure love some advice on how to proceed. The lie you are charged with telling, the closet you've been pulled into, is so minimal, so minor. All you have to say is, yeah, she has to go in for this inpatient lady part thing. And we're going to take her to the hospital that day. You don't have to worry about it or take her to the doctor, take her to the clinic so they can take care of it. That's all you have to say. And then you can let her manage her own relationship with her parents and you can let mom, her mom, your mother-in-law, stew in her own suspicions. Your sister-in-law is doing what adult children frequently do with sexually conservative parents. Uh, She is running them on a need-to-know basis and she has decided that they do not need to know this. She decided, she determined earlier that you and – your wife did need to know this or she needed you to know it and needed your help and you guys are rightly providing her with help. She also unfortunately decided that for whatever reason, perhaps she wanted the comfort of sleeping in a bed and not on a couch after this procedure. Perhaps she wanted the comforts of home and the love of mom and dad to bask in it a little bit after this procedure, which maybe has some you know emotional repercussions for her. Maybe she's not you know, delighted about having to get an abortion, but it is the right thing to do right now for her and her partner. And she still has some qualms about it or some regrets. And she would rather curl up in her own bed behind a door that closes with those feelings than to curl up on your uncomfortable couch in a house where she'll have no privacy at all. Just respect your sister-in-law and what she's going through and love her and support her and try not to make this about you or the closet that you've been pulled into. You're not going to have to lie every day for the rest of your life. That's, it's not that kind of closet. It's omitting a single detail, a small detail, a private detail of your sister's medical and sexual history that her parents would not react well to knowing. She's running mom and dad on a need-to-know basis, and it's not about you. Just remember that and keep your mouth shut. Going to the hospital for lady parts thing, you and your wife are taking her that day. Hi, Dan. I need some help. You see, right now I'm currently choosing the sin of homosexuality. And my mother, bless her sweet, conservative Bible Belt heart, believes that she, in fact, made me homosexual. Because growing up, I was very sheltered and she would do things like draw clothes on scantily clad or nude women and the photography books I would get from the library and all those kind of fun things. And she thinks that a domineering mother and a passive or absent father make people gay. Yet none of my other six siblings are gay. And so for her, it's a very a very life-ending thing for me to be gay, and she also thinks she made me gay. And so I want to be able to gently try to educate her that you don't, in fact, make people gay. 
And so I was wondering if you could help me if there were resources I should look at, articles, people I should check into. Just I just want to educate her in that that's not how gay people happen. This family structure argument about what makes kids gay has been so thoroughly discredited that you almost never hear it anymore. And you used to hear it constantly, that if a kid was gay, it was the parents' fault and mom was domineering, dad was weak, or dad was domineering and mom was weak, or dad was absent or mom was absent. It was just this, you know, look at the parents and whoever and whatever they were, you could blame them. That was the argument. And the fact that there were gay men like my husband out there who had great relationships with their fathers as children and very present dads that they were very close to and who were also gay didn't negate it uh, because there were guys like me out there who had strained relationships with our fathers when we were kids. And it's not that the strained relationship with dad and the clinging to mom was what made me gay. Ta-da, ta-da, I had a strained relationship with my father because I was gay because I was a little sissy kid and it was awkward, right? Awkward for dad, awkward for me. And that's what put the strain on our relationship. The fact that I was a gay kid, not the fact that we were strained made me into a gay kid. And then, caller, as you point out, you have siblings. I have two older brothers, not gay. So if my parents and the way they were made me gay, how come that was so selective? How come their other sons aren't also gay? They had the same parents. The answer is it just doesn't fucking work that way. And a good book in addition to recent Lovecast guest Matthew Vines's God and the Gay Christian, which could help your mother. A really great book uh, that you're also going to want to get your mother is Gay Straight and the Reason Why the Science of Sexual Orientation by Simon LeVay, which will walk your mother through all of it. Literally, this is a – it's a terrific and readable book. It's written in – by a scientist but in English that anybody can understand, even your idiot mother – and it'll walk her through everything that we know about the science of sexual orientation, about what makes some people gay, what makes some people straight, and how this actually works. And it is not her fault. But if these books don't help, if reasoning her, if reasoning with her doesn't help, and she persists with this, the way I was made you gay, just short circuit that by saying, well, thanks, mom. Thank you. Whatever you did that made me gay – Thank you, because I like being gay. And if she keeps it up, then I like to say the gross thing. Thank you, Mom, for making me gay, because I love to suck me some cock. You want to keep talking about this, Mom? You want to keep like going down this road of you blaming yourself for being gay? Because I am going to join you on that road, and I'm going to call you every time I give a blowjob to thank you for the load I just swallowed. Or maybe we could fucking knock this off, Mom. Or if you don't want to get those phone calls, Mom, maybe we can fucking knock this shit off. Hi, Dan. Uh, I'm a t- straight 27-year-old uh, female. I've been in a good relationship with a man for two and a half years now, and um, realizing I'm quite depressed. And this is a really familiar problem to me, as um, I seem to be the fattest and least happiest I ever am when I'm in a relationship. And it's not because the men are bad. It's because I'm I'm not with my best friends. I'm, I'm not with my girlfriends. I know I'm straight. I'm not a lesbian. But um, I'm realizing that my closest female friendships have been the most important companionships in my life. And when I'm in a relationship, that just minimizes um, that. But at this late 
20 stage in my life, it's it's not just minimized because of the time management. It's diminishing because of adulthood. <laughs> it's not just time. It's that everybody else is busy and it's just, it's just not something that you're supposed to do anymore. You live with your best friend. You know, you're supposed to be with your man and that's it. But I find myself incredibly depressed and I don't know. I guess my question is, how do I grieve the loss of prioritizing what's been the most important relationship in my life, which is my best friend? How do I grieve this loss of constant companionship with friends and just happily accept that my life will mostly be with my boyfriend? Who says you're supposed to be with your man and that's it? I mean, who says that besides fucking morons? And I'm not calling you a fucking moron caller. This floats around out there and people hear it and then they believe it, that this is the way relationships are supposed to work, that you are supposed to be with your romantic partner and they're supposed to be your romantic partner, your sexual partner, your life partner, and your best friend as well. And one person really can't be all those things. And, you know, the research, and I could Google it and cite it quickly, but I'm in a hurry today, really bears out that people who get all of those things only from one other person, that their relationships aren't very stable, that you need other people in your life. So knowing what you know about yourself, that being just with one guy all the time and having to get all of your emotional support from that person, all of your friendship time, you know, that only that person can be your confidant and they get to be your sex partner and all these other crazy things, that that makes you depressed, that you're the kind of person who needs your friends around and female companionship and friendships in addition to a romantic relationship. Like set that aside. You don't have to buy into this bullshit. Why are you believing? You know this to be untrue based on your own experience in your life. Maybe there are people out there who say you're supposed to be with your man and that's it. But you, you personally, it ain't good for you to be with your man and that's it. So you're going to live differently. Now, logistically, uh, shit happens. You know, friends partner up, they get married, they have children, and they see each other less during those those years, you know, late 20s, 30s, maybe early 40s. Then they get a lot of free time, right, as their kids get older and people tend to reconnect. In that interim, you can also cultivate and form other fucking friendships with people who do not yet have children. You can have friends who are older. You can have friends who are younger, friends who aren't in that unsweet spot of pairing off and Shitting kids, right? You can make some younger friends and again, some older friends while maintaining as best you can with social media and whatever time you can carve out your connections with your oldest friends. And you say to anybody you get into a relationship with, I'm not the kind of person who spends 24 hours a day with their romantic partner. I have friends and I need to see them and I need a lot of time to myself. And I want you to be that kind of person too. I'm not going to be the kind of girlfriend who tells you you can't hang out with your male friends, right? And there are a lot of straight guys out there who've had that kind of girlfriend and have had terrible experiences with that kind of girlfriend who are jealous, jealous when they spend time with their male friends and controlling about it. So you may, if you put that on the table, the odds that you'll meet a guy who thinks that that is not some sort of emotional fault of yours that you want him that you want to have time alone with your friends and you would like him to have time alone with his as well, if only because that gives you time to have time alone with yours, that's going to be a selling point for you. That's going to be a Yahtzee moment for some guy who's come off of two or three relationships with women who 
wouldn't allow him to see his friends or sabotage those relationships or sucked up so much of his time and semen that he didn't have time for his friends. So move confidently into the world being who you are and go find what it is that you need. A romantic relationship with a guy who doesn't expect you to be with him and that's it. And you can have that kind of relationship and have your friendships too. Hi, Dan. I'm a 40-year-old guy who lives close to the Canadian border. I've got a situation coming up. I met a girl online who was living in Canada, and we were dating for a while. And she's actually from Taiwan, and uh, her work visa has expired. So she's going to have to go back to Taiwan. We've been dating now for about eight months. She's currently living with me in the U.S. on a visitor's visa. And next month, I'm going to fly back with her to go to Taiwan and visit her family and tour Taiwan for a couple of weeks. But after that, things are kind of up in the air. And I'm not sure how the best way to end this, because I don't see a possibility of it continuing further. She, finding work in the U.S. is very hard. Finding work in Canada is also uh, difficult. She could possibly go to school, but she already has a master's degree and school is expensive. And then there's also the issue that I'm not quite sure if, even if she were able to stay here, if um, we have enough of a relationship that would even uh, allow it to go further. Um, she is used to living in big cities, and I live in a smaller town, and I fear that that wouldn't work out for her. I'm ready to settle down and possibly have a family. She's not quite there yet. Though her English is pretty good one-on-one, -on -one. she struggles whenever we hang out with my friends and she feels left out. So there's like some circumstances like that. But I think the end result is that when I come back from Taiwan and she stays there, we're probably going to find ourselves ending our relationship and I'm just not sure the best way to, to handle that. So if you have some advice, let me know. If you know that this is over, that she's moving home, you're unwilling to marry her, that never comes up. Even uh, a marriage of convenience where it allows her to stay and then you guys figure out if you really want to get married down the road and really commit to each other. I don't understand why you're going to Taiwan with her to meet her family. That broadcasts to her and her family intentions toward her that your call and your comments make clear that, that, that you don't hold, that you have no interest in any sort of long-term commitment with her, that you guys are on different pages, she wants different things, that you don't see a future with her. But going off to meet someone's family, particularly under these kinds of circumstances, what that says is I picture potentially a future here and it is a false representation. You are, in a sense, misleading her and misleading her family by going home with her to meet them, accompanying her back to Taiwan. So unless – you know, there's a 20% chance or a 15% chance that that you're open perhaps to marriage and that there's a chance she's also interested in it. I'm making the assumption that she's just not letting you come along because you invited yourself along and she doesn't know how to say no. Not assuming that she's dying to marry you. But if she is open to marrying you or wants to marry you and you, there's a small chance you might want to marry her if things continue to play out, then okay, go. But if there's no chance, if you're sure, small town – uh, you know, English language skills not quite where they need to be. No job potentially available to her. Not you know, not on the same page about where you guys would want to live or what would you want. Don't go to Taiwan with her. Make your farewells at the airport. Uh, hi, Dan. Um, I am a 32-year-old straight-ish lady living in Los Angeles, and I'm calling about 
Uh, something you brought up in your podcast this morning, I listened to it on my way to work, and um, the timing was really appropriate in my own life. Um, you mentioned the article by the man who had cheated on his second wife, and she found out, and it was an instinction-level event, and intellectually, I completely agree that cheating should not necessarily mean the end of a relationship, um, but realistically... I don't know, or I can't wrap my head around how that would work. I'm actually engaged to um, the man of my dreams. I'm getting married this summer. And then I also found out last night that an affair may have been the precipitating event in my parents' divorce 20 years ago. So this all seems like a really relevant question. Again, I agree with you intellectually, but I don't understand on a realistic level how it could not be an instinction level event. I guess I don't understand. I feel like with human behavior, once you do something that's morally or ethically wrong and you quote unquote get away with it, it's kind of human nature to perhaps engage in that behavior again. And so, you know, if there aren't severe consequences, how do you ever trust again that someone isn't going to? I've only been cheated on once in my past. It was many, many, many years ago. I don't know. This isn't really a current situation that I'm in. I'm just wondering like, how, how you could possibly get past that. The stats on infidelity used to show that men in committed long-term uh, relationships, roughly uh, 60% of them at one point or other cheated, and women 50- 40%, 40% cheated. And more recent studies uh, have shown that that number is evened out, that it's roughly 50% of both, that women now with more economic freedom and uh, more opportunity uh, and more autonomy uh, and a little bit more sense of egalitarian fairsiness are as likely now to cheat as men had been and still are. Um, so cheating happens. And since those 50% of men and 50% of women aren't all going to be with or married to each other. The odds that adultery or an infidelity will happen to any given relationship really high, including your relationship. Um, Cheryl Strayed uh, is a rival advice columnist and she writes uh, Dear Sugar uh, at the Rumpus uh, or wrote it. I'm not sure if Dear Sugar's back, but Cheryl's now doing a, an advice podcast. So we are now officially bitter, bitter rivals. But I love this column that she wrote at Dear Sugar a few years ago, and I'm frequently sending it to people. I get a lot of questions from people who've just been cheated on, people who are you know, in the throes of that discovery. And I send them this column because it says it better than I could say it. And it says it from a place of the person who has been cheated on because Cheryl wrote this about her then fiancé, now husband, uh, having cheated on her and her decision to stay with him. All you have to Google to pull this right up is Sully – Sweet, dear sugar. The headline, the rumpus is a bit of sully in your sweet. And I just want to share one paragraph with you and encourage you to go read the whole thing. Shaw writes, painful as it is, there's nothing more common in long-term relationships than infidelity in its various versions. Cheated, pretty much cheated, cheated a tiny bit, but it probably doesn't quite count. Came extremely close to cheating, want to cheat, wondering about what it would be like to cheat, is flirting over email, technically even cheating, etc. The letters in my inbox, Cheryl goes on, the stories of many of my friends and my own life are a testament to that. I'm not suggesting that everyone cheats, of course, and I sincerely hope that you and your husband will never have to confront this issue. But if you really want to live happily ever after, and if you honestly want to know what the secret to sustaining a lifelong healthy love is, 
it would be a good idea to openly grapple with some of the most common challenges of doing so, rather than pretending that you have the power to shut them down by making advanced threats about walking out, no conversations required, the moment transgression occurs. So what Cheryl's saying there, and please go read the entire column, it's just genius. What she's saying there echoes something that I've often said, which is knowing that infidelity happens, knowing that people do cheat, knowing that the chances that you will be cheated on are at least 50% in a long-term relationship. What do you do? Well, you look at your parents' divorce, caller, and you see adultery as the cause of that divorce. And so you can say, I will not tolerate adultery. And you can still be cheated on. Most people going into a marriage that's monogamous and exclusive have explicitly said that. And most people who've been cheated on, who've explicitly said that, have been cheated on anyway. So if you define adultery as your parents may have, and may, maybe the, the infidelity was a contributing factor, maybe it was just the last straw, maybe it was evidence of a, of a disregard or a, a dysfunction that then they just had to pull the trigger and separate. But it, your parents may have defined adultery as the unforgivable sin, the relationship extinction level event that cannot be worked through or got past. And so it became that because they defined it that way. We call that a self-fulfilling prophecy. We can define infidelity differently. We can define it as a betrayal. We can regard it as a serious betrayal, as a violation. We can regard it, we can experience it as traumatic, but we can also define it as something that we can work through, that we can get past. And if we're interested in being with somebody for life, it would really be a good idea to define it as something that you can get past because the odds that you will at some point have to get past it to stay in this relationship are pretty high. There are degrees, right? Individual results may vary. Case-by-case basis. There's a difference between being with somebody who 25 years into your marriage and maybe sex isn't as important to either of you anymore, has an outside sexual encounter in a very safe and discreet way. Maybe you never even find out about it, right? And there's that infidelity. And maybe that's a much more easily understood, forgiven, and gotten past, worked through, gotten past infidelity if it does come out. And then there's, you know, the guy who 18 months into your marriage fucks your sister and gets her pregnant. That's a lot harder to get past. That's why we have to use the case-by-case rationale. Or, you know, the woman who fucks your brother and gets herself pregnant. Harder to get past. But people, when they talk about adultery and infidelity, they lump all of those things in together. The fucked your sister, got her pregnant 18 months after your wedding, and the together 30 years, raised two kids together, companions now, life partners, comfortable with each other, love each other, not interested really in having sex with each other anymore and haven't had sex for five years, fucked somebody else. So that she, if it was her, and it's not always him, that she, so she could stay married and stay sane and be there for him. She went and got this need met elsewhere, outsourced this thing that they used to do for each other. And we lump that in with fuck my sister, got her pregnant 18 months into our marriage. And we label them both unforgivable. And they both then become unforgivable. You know what? Fuck sister, got her pregnant 18 months after wedding. I think that's pretty unforgivable myself. I don't think that's something that even I could get past. Luckily, Terry has no interest in my sister. But 30 years in, that thing happening comes home to me, makes me breakfast, hangs out with me, plays cards with me. We're still together. That intimacy, that familiarity, not threatened at all. That I could get past. And I would hope that you also, as you think about marriage over the long term, 
not just thinking about the next couple of years, that that is also something that you could imagine yourself getting past. Because then your relationship, your marriage will survive for the long term. It will not be destroyed by this thing that is very likely to happen. Anyway, I've gone on long enough. Please, please. Like I said before I rattled on and on and on, Cheryl says it's best. Go read Dear Sugar's Sully and Sweet column at The Rumpus. Put this in perspective for yourself. Hi, Dan. I just wanted to comment on Fifty Shades of Grey. I know you've been pretty down on Fifty Shades of Grey, and I totally understand why partially. And I've listened to you talk about it being kind of a disservice to the kink community, and I completely understand that. That being said, looking at some articles recently, it looks like at least it's starting some new conversations and sex toy sales are up. And I know personally, I've had a lot of girlfriends who would never, ever talk about something like their sex life or even potentially their more than vanilla interests finally start talking about stuff like that thanks to Fifty Shades of Grey. So maybe it's not all so bad. Maybe it's not all so bad. I I haven't seen Fifty Shades of Grey. I haven't seen Two Girls, One Cup either. I think there are things I shouldn't have to watch or sit through or endure or read just because I happen to do this for a living. Amanda Hess at Slate, who's writing, uh, I just adore. She went to see Fifty Shades of Grey and she wrote a long and thoughtful review called Fifty Shades of Grey is not a good movie and I loved it. So even in the – and she's a feminist writer. Even in the feminist writer community, there's a split. There's a lot of – you know, people screaming and yelling about Fifty Shades of Grey. There are upsides, perhaps, though. Vox points out that Fifty Shades of Grey passes the Bechtel test. There are two women in this movie. There are more than two women. There are multiple women in this movie who have a conversation with each other about something other than a man. So it passes the Bechtel test, which I don't think anyone really expected this film would. So credit where credit is due. And it is sending people into sex toy stores. Hopefully they're going to their local uh, woman-owned, smart, feminist sex toy stores to buy their sex toys. And hopefully they're not using them in quite the same way as they are used in Fifty Shades of Grey. Hopefully consent is clear. Hopefully people aren't doing things under duress. Hopefully everything is negotiated cleanly and completely before people jump in with the pocket altar boys and the riding crops and all the other great sex toys that are out there that this movie has inspired people to go get their hands on. There are upsides and maybe I'll see the movie maybe this week. All right. We're going to take a quick break from the calls. Every once in a while, we like to invite onto the show one of the many dedicated, hardworking researchers, scientists, psychologists, psychiatrists, academics who are out there tilling the fields of sexuality and gender to explain to us some results from their work from a new study for a little segment we like to call What You Got. Joining us today, Dr. Amy Muse. She has been on the podcast previously talking about her work on the benefits of being GGG. You should all be familiar with that expression, good giving and game in a romantic relationship, which she terms in science speak sexual communal strength. Previously, Amy was on the show to talk about findings from an earlier study that found people who are higher in sexual communal strength, or GGG, are more likely to maintain sexual desire over time in their relationships. She now has a new study out in the Journal of Social, Psychological, and Personality Science, and she joins us on the phone. Hey, Amy, how you doing? I'm great, Dan. How are you? I'm good. I'm Pardon me. Hey, Dr. Muse, how you doing? I should say. <laughs> I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Since we're having you on in your professional capacity and not just you and me being internet buddies. So uh, your new study, what did you find? What do you got for us? So 
kind of wanted to look at the partner. So we knew from before that people who are high, and we call it sex renal strength, but it's really being GGG, um, benefited themselves. So they felt higher desire and they could maintain this over time. But we wanted to know what it was like to be the partner of somebody who is GGG. And what we found is that uh, people who have partners that are higher in sexual communal strength, they feel more satisfied and they're more committed to their relationship. And this seemed to be because they were actually picking up on the fact that their partner was responsive to their sexual needs. So being GGG, the previous study found, was good for the person who was being indulged, but this new study finds it's also good for the person doing the indulging? Yes, exactly. So if I if I sense that my partner is, I mean, this makes a lot of sense, right? If, if I think that my partner is responsive to my sexual needs, so if I sense that my partner is GG, then I feel more satisfied in the relationship and I'm more committed to maintaining the relationship or time. Mm-hmm. And the partner who's being the GGG one benefits from that. But GGG isn't always one way. How do you separate, how do you control for that? You know, in the best case scenario, there's GGG going in both directions. It's not just one person's indulged and the other person's indulgent, but they're both equally sort of indulgent of each other's needs and desires. And maybe one has a kink and the other has like, you know, romantic desires or just their vanilla needs aren't neglected. And the GGG goes both ways. So how do you control for who the indulger and indulgee is in these studies? Absolutely. So we think about this kind of as like an individual difference. So it could vary a little bit based on situations like what you're talking about for specific likes or or dislikes. Um, But we kind of think of this as, you know, um, almost like a a personality characteristic or relationship characteristic. So you're motivated to meet your partner's needs sort of more generally. And so when when we look at this, in our analysis, we can control for a person's own level of GG as well as their partner's. And what we find in this new study is that above and beyond how GG I am, I still benefit from my partner being GGG. So it's not just all about, you know, I meet my partner's needs, I feel good, but also beyond that, my partner meets my needs and that makes me feel more satisfied and committed to the relationship. One of the criticisms that floats around out there about uh, me and the GGG thing is that it leads to people mm-hmm. being uh, you know, abused or engaging in sex mm-hmm. acts that leave them devastated and doing things they don't really want to do and they're traumatized by. In your research of sexual communal strength, a.k.a. GGG, mm-hmm. have you found any evidence of that? Have you encountered people in, your, in, in the data, in your research, who are trying to be GGG and harming themselves in the process? So this is a really good question, and we um, get this criticism as well. Um, we get these questions. So... At one point, we asked people about what they do to meet their partner's sexual need. And these were overwhelmingly things that were positive. We didn't get themes of, of coercion um, or feeling like this obligation. There really was a lot of like doing it because you wanted to see your partner happy. And that was an important component of it. Now, there is something else that we've looked at that we call in our research unmitigated sexual communion. And this is the idea that you meet your partner's needs, but you have no consideration for your own needs. And this, we find, is a negative, is something negative. What did you call that again before you go on? We call it unmitigated sexual communion. So it's this idea that being communal towards your partner, so meeting your partner's needs is not contingent on your own needs at all. So you don't get your own needs into consideration. It's all about sort of meeting your partner's needs. And we find that there's negative consequences to that. So it is quite important, this idea of mutuality, um, that you're both sort of focused on, you know, both having your sexual needs met. Um, When you sort of give up your own autonomy and only focus on your partner's needs across the relationship, we do find negative consequences of this. 
Okay. And so it's an important caveat. And it's one that's built into my definition of GGG, which is game, you know, good. No one has a problem with that. Good and bad. Try to acquire some skills and be thoughtful about it. Giving. Sometimes yeah. you think you give pleasure without an expectation of an immediate return, particularly in a long-term relationship. You know, one person yeah. is feeling it and the other isn't. You have like sort of low stress, low stakes, release sex for the other person who's horny that doesn't require a lot from the, uh, you know, the person who's giving in that moment. And of course, giving also right. applies to in the moment when you're both really feeling it to make sure that there's reciprocity and mutual concern for mutual pleasure in like right. old bore crazy sex also. And game is usually what people get hung up on. Game for anything, dot, 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 within reason. And the reason, yes. you know, reasons can include your own limits, your own boundaries, your own sense of personal safety, your own autonomy, whether your needs are also being taken in consideration and met. And when people criticize GGG, they, they always leave off the dot, 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 within reason. Yeah, I agree. And this is actually something that participants said themselves. We would ask them about how they meet their partner's sexual needs. You know, they would say that they were open to what their partner was into and they would try to like pay attention to their likes and dislikes and would do their very best to meet them. And they would, they would include that caveat themselves when they were talking about this. You know, as long as it's within the boundaries that we formally set up, you know, as long as it doesn't make me uncomfortable. Like, so, so they built in that within reason. And I do think that's a really important caveat. Any more studies coming down the pike about sexual communal strength that we should be keeping our eyes open for? Yes. One that should be coming out soon that's really on the decision to engage in sex. And we're particularly interested because one issue that a lot of couples are facing is desire discrepancy. One partner has a higher desire for sex than the other partner. And so we think that actually being high in sexual communal strength is going to be really important for desire discrepant couples. Um, because they'll be more motivated to meet their partner's needs and they may not suffer some of the negative consequences that we sometimes when couples have desire discrepancies. So this study is around sexual decision-making and we do find that people who are high in sexual communal strength, they're motivated to engage in even when their desire for sex is lower than their partner and they actually reap benefits from doing this. So they feel satisfied with the sexual experience. They feel satisfied with the relationship. That's a dangerous area to tiptoe into. That, that's going to be really yeah, controversial because you're, you know, you're advising people potentially to have sex when they're not feeling like having sex. And since you know, we have a history, you know, a gendered political history where women weren't allowed to not feel desire, where it was perfectly legal to rape your wife, for instance, because she wasn't allowed to say no, yeah. to say to people that you know, practically in an egalitarian relationship of equals, we find that it's, there's, there are benefits to sometimes going through the motions for your partner to make them feel good. That's yeah, you're you going to have to really, really tiptoe around that minefield carefully, aren't you? It is, and we've dealt with this in some of our past studies. And what's always been interesting to me is this is something particular to do with when we talk about sexuality, because we study this idea of communal strength and meeting your partner's needs in other domains of relationships. And of course, we don't see controversy around that, right? Making your partner dinner when you don't really feel like it, giving your partner a back massage when you don't really feel like it. Mm -hmm. um, but when we when we talk about sexuality, it, it has these different connotations. So we do come up against a lot of this in our work. Um, so one of the things that we're hoping to do is is, is what, you, what you asked before about teasing this apart from coercion. I mean, so far we don't see evidence that this is at all linked to coercion, but being able to account for this and control for it and, and find our effects above and beyond is something that we'll look into. But we, one thing that's interesting is that we don't really find differences in our work. So this really isn't something that women are only doing for men. We find men and women tend to maybe have different ways of expressing their sexual communal strength. So we see that women might engage in sex more 
um, when they're not in the mood, whereas men might do other things like engaging in activities that aren't really their favorite, but their, their partner really enjoys that. But we don't find that the benefits of doing this are different across genders. So men and women both benefit from being high in sexual communal strength, even if they express it sometimes in slightly different ways. Dr. Amy Muse, we hope you'll come back on the show when that next study comes out and share the results with us. She's a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Toronto, Mississauga. Did I pronounce that correctly? Mississauga. Yeah, that's right. Mississauga. And you're, you're doing great work. And I don't say that just because it's confirming everything I've been saying forever and ever and ever, but also because of that. Thank you. <laughs> you're welcome. Thanks for jumping on the phone today. Anytime. I am a 43-year-old gay man, and my fiancé is 53 and semi-closeted. We live with my two wonderful teenage daughters. Our home is a happy one and a hangout haven to all of my daughter's high school friends, many of whom are gay. My fiancé has, over time, become more and more comfortable having my friends and family over and going to my friends' homes, as I made it clear it was not an option for me to live my life in secret. He has also come out in his place of work, and I am invited to work functions. We will be married at the end of this summer. He is a product of a staunch Catholic Midwestern upbringing, despite living in Southern California for over 15 years before coming to live with me in the Northeast. There is no aspect of our own lives together where he is no longer out, with a few notable exceptions. He has three siblings, a handful of cousins, and old friends whom I have not met and who know nothing about me. They all live several hundred miles away. He does not see them with any regularity. They do share occasional phone calls and chat on Facebook regularly. After the engagement, I threw down an ultimatum for him to come out and to tell them about us if we are to be married. I preach that he is an independent 53-year-old man who shouldn't have to be ashamed of himself nor worry about what his closed-minded family would probably say. He said he understood, but a few deadlines came and went. He finally turned to me and said, I lost my two closest sisters to cancer and shortly after that my mother. My father died when I was a child. I do not want to lose contact with the remaining family that I have. He then asked, what is your fantasy? That they will invite us over for Thanksgiving or something? It isn't going to happen, and I will be without them altogether. That hit me like a punch in the gut. I dropped my ultimatum, and I have stopped bringing it up. It really isn't my place to decide for him that they may not be worth having in his life. He seems to enjoy communicating with them. It does hurt when I hear him talk about his family and friends, and I know I will never be able to meet them or share that part of him. His secrecy where they are concerned does not really impact our daily lives in any way. It just hurts. I'm quite interested in your perspective of this situation, Dan. Thank you so much. I want to point out first what your fiancé has done. For fear of losing his relatives, he's lost his relatives. He's lost what family he has because he's had to move far away from them and really wall them off. And and keep them at arm's length, at continent's length, it sounds like. And he doesn't really share his whole life with them or much of his life with them because he can't because he fears losing them. And it's ironic that for many closeted queer people who you want to do – want to have a full life, want to you know have relationships, want to get married without losing their family that – so they never come out to them. That's why they're closeted. But they, you know, in that bargain, in the end, they've lost their family anyway. So the only way to actually keep your family, to have them, is to be out to them. And maybe you will lose them permanently. Maybe you will lose them over the short term and they will come around. The only way to lose them for sure is to be closeted, is to never come out to them because you have to put up this false front. You have to keep them out. 
in this way. You have to build walls. And then it's as if you don't really know them and they don't really know you because hiding that dimension of your life from them really is to hide everything. You're really not present. You're really not there. All right. So that's what I would say to your fiance if he called, but he didn't call. You called and you want to know what to do. And I can't tell you. You're going to either have to let him go if you can't live with this little pain of never being able to know his relatives, to know these people who are so important to him that he's willing to closet himself all his life and lose them in the process. That's how important they are to him. He's going to lose them. Or you're going to have to pay that price of admission. Leave him because you can't deal with it or just acknowledge that this sucks, it hurts, it's who he is and I have to eat it. If I want to be with him, if I want to be his husband, I have to accept this. If I can't accept this, I am free to go. But if you are going to accept it with the caveat that you are allowed to make your objections known once or twice and then shut the fuck up about it for the rest of your life because you've paid that price of admission, then you can stay. So you have to decide, caller, if this is so painful you can't live with it, don't live with it. But if it is a pain you are willing to accept to be with him, to be married to him, then you have to accept it. And in that acceptance, you have to stop complaining about it. You have to stop making it an issue. If and when it comes up, naturally, you can register that it pains you that you will never know these people and that you think it's sad and that is a loss for you. But no more ultimatums if you choose to stay. No more screaming fights about it. Just an acknowledgement of pain and loss on both sides. He has lost his family by staying in the closet, by walling them off. And you have lost extended family that on some level you feel you have a right to as a spouse. And and perhaps you do because when you marry someone, you also marry their people. And he's keeping his people from you. You're being cheated out of something that marriage is supposed to bring to the table. This extended web of connection. And that sucks for you. And if you can accept this pain, he should be able to acknowledge it. And in that bargain, perhaps there's a compromise you can both live with. Hi, I am a 25-year-old straight woman from a Western city, and I have a little bit of a problem that I would really like your help with. (laughs) My boyfriend and I have been getting really serious. He and I have been talking about moving in together and getting a dog and um, going on a really big trip together, and in fact, our parents are meeting tomorrow for the first time, so... The other day when I was sending emails on his computer from my work email, I opened a download to then resend in another email. And in his downloads on his computer, there was a picture of his penis. And um, when I brought it up to him, I found out that he was sending um, pictures of his penis for uh, two women on Craigslist that we had not talked about before and I was a little upset because we had talked about his other more kinky habits and I had been very GGG and I felt like he had kind of lied to me, our whole relationship. You know, we've been together almost 10 months and this has never been brought up. And, um, his argument was that, you know, his masturbation habits are not really any of my business, but I feel like if he's sending pictures of his penis, and people are 
emailing him back and trying to invite him over to fuck them. It is my business. And, you know, he assured me that, you know, while he's not emailing them back, it's just more of a him looking for, you know, the fantasy and ability to, I guess, find somebody that would want to fuck him or I don't know, but it, it really bothers me and hurt my feelings. And, um, so a serious development of us trying to move forward in this way, I feel like now we've taken steps back and I just want to know what, what you think we should do for, I guess, more so me to move past this. Should we try for him to just send pictures to me to get his rocks off or I don't know. I'm just, it kind of, it just bothers me and I want to be able to move past this because I love him and I want to be with him. So the guy you're going to marry, you discover has this secret sort of kink or masturbatory habit, routine, uh, thrill in sending dick pics to anonymous women via Craigslist, right? That's the issue? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. First of all, half the people he sent, probably three quarters of the women on Craigslist that he is sending his dick pic to are guys pretending to be women. Well, he did point that out to me. So. <laughs> Uh, and also, you know, there are a lot of people out there who the computer and, you know, digital images where they're, you know, how they imprinted sexually. People grew up, that's, that they were the first masturbatory experiences and, the, and it's an interactive medium. So it's, I don't think it's that toxic or crazy or sick or twisted or even that kinky that this is a pleasure for him. Like sharing his mm-hmm. private junk with anonymous people that he has no interest in ever meeting I don't see necessarily, you know, but I'm me and I'm not you, right? And you're marrying him and right. I'm not. And I don't see the pro- but I don't see the problem there. And 50 years ago, a guy with this interest would be, I think, a bad candidate for marriage because right. he would be flashing people on the street to scratch this itch of like showing his dick off, right? To people, you know, to women. At least, uh, you know, he has this option now that allows him to show his dick off, you know, in this anonymous way to people who are wanting to see his dick, who are saying, "Yes, please show me your dick." I, I think the other concern that I had was I actually have, I lived with a girl, I have a roommate who had a boyfriend that did this too, uh-huh. and she broke up with him <laughs> because he ended up actually trying to have relationships with um, some of the women uh, that he had previously done that with. So uh-huh. it actually was something that I never thought I'd encounter. Um, and it was a little disconcerting that I found out this far into our relationship. Okay. Well, just because this girl's, uh, boyfriend did this and cheated doesn't mean every boy who does this intends to, or will cheat. Right. That, that necessarily doesn't follow. So what's your assessment of him on the infidelity scale? Do you think he's trustworthy when he talks about this? Does it seem like he has an interest in open relationships in cheating? You, no, it, that's, a, that's a whole other, that's a whole other subject. Go ahead. Yeah. No, we, we've had. Um, we've had discussions about that. We listened to your show. Um, and both of us are not, we, we said, you know, not right now. Um, we're not really into that. Of course, you know, later on in marriage, that could be something that we completely reevaluate because, you know, we're open-minded people. Right. Um, and if and you li- 50 years down the line, that's completely a different conversation. Right. And if you've listened to the show, you know that infidelity happens and you want that to right. be something that you can get past in a long-term relationship. If, right. if you have a monogamous agreement, it's a betrayal. It's not okay. It's a violation of trust. Trust would have to be reestablished. You know, apologies would have to be mm-hmm. made. Forgiveness would have to be granted. But the odds that one or the other or both of you are going to cheat on each other over the multi-decade course of a marriage are pretty high. So you want to go into yeah. that marriage saying if this happens or when it happens, 
it'll be, you know, it'll be a shit show, but we'll get through it. If okay. indeed, if indeed you're making a monogamous commitment. And I say this to people because I want their monogamous commitments to outlast the almost inevitable infidelity, not because I'm an enemy of monogamous commitments. I'm saying this because mm-hmm. I want people who made a monogamous commitment to stay together. Right. And that means really processing in advance of an infidelity, you know, the fallout from it. And, 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 and like I said to a previous caller on today's show, that's a case-by-case judgment. You know, there's a difference between 30 years into a marriage where the sex is much less important or maybe non-existent, somebody getting a hand job or, you know, sleeping with a, a coworker on a business trip, male or female, because it's not just men who, who this happens for. And, and, you know, there's a difference between that scenario and, you know, you fucked my sister six months after the wedding and got, her, got my sister pregnant. Like that's an unforgivable right. infidelity that's shattering. 30 years into a marriage, like, you know, a hand job – from a masseuse, not necessarily so shattering and shouldn't be regarded as that shattering. So you should process right. all that. Then there's like this thing. He is having these erotic interactions with others and that seems to be a part of his sexuality, his sexual expression, his mm-hmm. hardwiring. And it may be – you can say to him, I want you to send me these pictures. I want you to direct this at me because I want to be the sole focus of all of your erotic energies Mm-hmm. And he will lie to you and pretend that that's what he's doing if that's what he must do to keep you in his life. But he's still going to do it with other people because I guarantee you that the charge he's getting from this is not I'm showing my dick to somebody who can see my dick whenever she wants. Okay. That's not the excitement. The excitement is I'm showing my dick off to a stranger, somebody who's never seen my dick before, someone who's going to have a, an, a reaction to my dick, probably a positive reaction, and that excites him. And so right. he's not going to be able to get that with or from you. He's going to get a different sort of reaction to his dick that he also enjoys from you. But it's not that surprise and brand new dick reaction that he's seeking from other people who are inviting him to do that with them. He's not like leaping out at people from behind bushes or trees. Right. So, you know, I would encourage you to make some, you know, if you want to be with him to – Make an accommodation for this with you know a lot of openness and honesty and understanding and 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 transparency that if he's going to do this that you know and you want some reassurance that he's not like making contact with other people or making plans to get with other people that maybe these in email accounts where he does this aren't necessarily password protected and you can dive in every once in a while and just for your what own do you mean set, dive in every once in a while read a, few, read a few dozen of the emails for your own okay. comfort and security if you can handle it if that's not going to be like fraud and horrible and just make you know you blow up if you can dive in every once in a while and see that what he's say, telling you is true that just he wants to show his dick to a stranger every once in a while it turns him on he has no intent of getting with anybody and if you can dive in okay. and see he's not making plans to get with anybody and that gives you some reassurance and can calm you down about it that's what's in it for him to allow you to have access to his email account. Like what, he, okay. what you get out of it is reassurance. What he gets out of it is peace. Okay. And buy off from you. Right. But if in the end you don't trust him, if in the end you, you give this creeping feeling he's cheating on you, you do have to trust your gut. So when we first started dating, we talked about different things that we were interested in doing. And then this never came up. And I guess for him it was because it didn't involve us together. Mm-hmm. So for me, it just, I kind of felt a little bit betrayed because I feel like we had every other conversation except for this one. And then he, you okay. know. Either he was hiding this from you because it was a smoke fire moment. Like he didn't share this with you because something is going on or mm-hmm. he didn't share this with you because it was embarrassing because he felt like right. it would make him seem like an Uber creep. 
and he would be diminished in your eyes or not attractive to you anymore because it is a little like, you know, flashery, creepy, weird. And if it isn't Mm -hmm. just about masturbation, it is just about him. And Mm -hmm. so in your conversations with him, you have to be the judge of which it is that he didn't share this with you because he was doing this with the intent to cheat on you or he didn't share this with you because it was embarrassing and he didn't think you'd understand and he thought it would be an unnecessary problem. So why raise the subject? Because he never had any intent and it didn't involve you and it was just something he did every once in a while for a jack-off session, which is about him. And you are going to have jack-off sessions. You're going to have masturbation moments in your relationship that he's not a part of, where you're fantasizing about other people. And they might even be while he's going down on you, right? And he's going to also have those because being together doesn't mean your sexuality is all directed at that other person. There's still going to be outward-directed impulses, moments, desires, and fantasies. With a monogamous commitment, they are not acted on. But they exist Mm -hmm. and there needs to be some reasonable accommodation and understanding where you're going to have your like fantasy scenarios that I'm not a part of. And you may like run that through your head while we're having sex. Keep your mouth shut about that. I may do the same. Or maybe it's going to be, you know, when I'm away for to see my mom for the weekend and you like have a few jack off sessions that I'm not in your imagination and a part of. And that's okay, And I'm going to do the same. And if it hurts okay. us to, to, to talk about those things in an explicit way because we want to pretend that both of us, our sexualities are all about each other, then we will suspend our disbelief and not talk about it. But let's be, okay. real, let's be realistic. Right. And then not police each other and not fault each other when we find evidence of what we know to be true, that our sexualities cannot be fully contained in just one other person. And so in a monogamous commitment setting, that means sometimes you explore those, that desire for variety or novelty through fantasy. And this is how he does it, right? Mm-hmm. This picture exchanges with these people out there in the ether, 75% of whom are dudes. <laughs> and you explore it some other way. Yeah. You made me feel a lot better. <laughs> well, but I'm giving, him, know, a, I'm giving I, him a tremendous benefit of the doubt here. You know what I mean? Your friend's right. no. ex was doing this and cheating and, and planning right. to cheat. He does have to cover some ground to, to, to demonstrate to you, not convince you, not persuade you, demonstrate to you, right. prove that this isn't about planning or cheating. This is about, you know, masturbating and fantasizing and, you know, some sort of online version of the, you know, guy behind the tree with the f- trench coat cliche from 50 years ago. Yeah. And if it's the latter, you can live with that. And you shouldn't be threatened mm-hmm. by it. If it's the former, because you want a monogamous commitment, you can't live with that. Yeah. And the onus is on him to demonstrate, to prove to you that it's the latter. Right. And then you have to not shame him about it. Then the price of admission you pay, if you stay with him, you can't be like, is squicked out about this all the time and bringing it up and being sour about it. You have to let him have right. it. Right. Okay. Okay. Call us in 10 years and let us know how it went. <laughs> okay. Good luck. Thanks so much. Hi. Hi, Dan. Straight male, living in New York, 30 years old, in a very happy, healthy relationship with my fiance. Uh, but there's one thing that I was hoping we could uh, dig a little deeper on. She has made it very clear in the four or five years we've been together that she would like to finger my ass. She'd like to either put toys into it or open up uh, anal on my part. And as much as I would love to please her, uh, even when I've attempted myself with either uh, either my finger or one of her toys, 
I get an immediate flight or fight response, and I I don't want anything. I don't want any part of it. Um, obviously, I would love to make this compromise and uh, give her the best that I can in my capabilities. But if it opens up into we have to outsource this need she has to somebody else, I'm not going to stop that as well. I mean, do you have any advice for a straight guy on, I guess, how to be more open with uh, anal and butt play? You don't have to like butt play. There are something like 25-30% of gay men never have anal sex. This idea that all gay men have and enjoy anal sex as tops or bottoms, bullshit. There are gay people out there who don't have anal sex. And it is totally fine to be a straight guy out there who doesn't like anal sex, who doesn't want to have it done to him or perhaps doesn't want to do it to a lady. The issue you're confronting is your fiance. This is something that she would like to do that's very important to her. And how do you handle that? That you put outsourcing on the table right away is good. There are lots of guys out there who would like to be pegged, who are looking for women to peg them, uh, who may be married to or with women who don't want to peg them, who have buy off to go find someone else to do that. And there's your fiance. And she is ready, willing, and able, and she has a strap on, and she is loaded for bear and good to go, right? Because she has you, and you are fine with her fucking some other guy's ass. All that said, if you would like to maybe get there for her, here's how you do it. You have anal intercourse alone. That doesn't mean you buy a great big fat dick dildo and sit on it and fuck yourself with it. That means you get a small vibrating egg or plug that doesn't look like a dick and doesn't jump in and out of your ass and you put it in your ass, you set it and forget it. Really, the butt plug is, for a lot of straight guys, the transition toy, the one that allows them to pick that lock, to connect with their buttholes as pleasure zones, as entries, not just exits. So you go get a butt plug, you get a medium one, don't get a small one, you don't get one that's shaped like a finger because as your sphincters clench that, it'll just shoot out of your ass. You need the butt plug that has enough of a that gets wide enough that when it narrows again before the base, which is flared, your sphincters can keep it in your ass. Get a medium. And here's what you do. When you're good and empty, you grease that thing up and you slide it into your ass. And there will be this moment where you pat where your sphincters pass the widest part of the butt plug and then begin to close around the narrow neck of the butt plug, and it kind of goes shoop right up your butt. A lot of people, that's a breathtaking moment. They kind of go, <gasps> right when that happens. But then it's in. And then you know what you do? You do whatever it is you usually do when you jack off alone. You look at some pornography. Maybe you send some pictures of your dick to strange women on Craigslist, 75% of whom are dudes. And you jack off. And it just sits in your ass. But then this amazing thing happens when you come. Your sphincters clench as you come during your ejaculatory hoo-ha phase, right? They clench and clench and clench over and over again. Not forever, just for a few seconds. And it will cause the butt plug, which is already putting pressure on your prostate, to gently move. It does not turn into a porn star in your ass and start drilling away. It gently moves against your prostate, which can really enhance your orgasm in that moment. A few, maybe a dozen, maybe two dozen masturbatory sessions where you treat yourself to that pleasure, that prostate stimulation, when you're alone, when there's no one standing there with a strap-on dildo on, who has no expectations, when you're not doing it for someone else's pleasure, when you're not in a position where you feel like you have to get through it or endure it so you don't disappoint that other person, but it's all about you and your ass and your pleasure in that moment, you may pick that lock. You may get to a place where you enjoy 
anal play. And then you can take that next leap to enjoying the girlfriend, the fiance right now, or perhaps the wife in the future, just fucking going to town on your ass. Or you may not get there. You may get a butt plug in your ass once or twice and find it so uncomfortable or unsettling or just not your thing, just like those 25, 30% of gay men who don't enjoy animal sex at all, that you don't have to do it or you don't want to do it. And you go to the then wife and you say, I gave it my best shot. I did everything Dan Savage ass fucker told me to do and it didn't work. So here, honey, here's Craigslist. Go find a guy who wants you to do this to their ass and then come home and tell me all about it. Hey, Dan, this is a call in response to a guy in episode 434 who was, uh, oh, he was upset about not being able to get casual uh, hookups in an open relationship. I called myself about a year, maybe a year and a half ago, having similar issues. And I've learned some things, uh, and I think there's some points here uh, of advice to give this guy. First, uh, and you touched on this, is to try to date other people who are open or in polyamorous relationships. Um, I know in OkCupid, they recently added a relationship type status, so you can. Uh, it's really easy to find people who are in open relationships. Um, the second thing is it's, um, there's the stereotype that it's a lot easier for women in open relationships. I found that not to be the case. I'm in an open relationship for two years. I date other people who are in open relationships. And there's a lot of things that come up that aren't easy for women, um, specifically that men can be just as weird about uh, hooking up with women in open relationships. I'm not sure if that's because they're intimidated by uh, the sexual agency of the women who are open. I'm not sure if it's also a combination of that and maybe some like possessiveness, but I've uh, heard many stories from women who you know, things are going well and then they tell someone that they're in a relationship that the guy gets really weird and just kind of falls off uh, the map. And then the last thing, too, is you should really drop the sense of entitlement. Um, I don't know if that's something that comes off uh, to women on dates, but it certainly came up in the call. And uh, it's it's not sexy and it's a turnoff. You know, no one knows posing sex. And just because you're upfront about your situation doesn't mean that everyone else has to be into that. So uh, I think if uh, the caller really takes uh, some of that advice to heart, that he's going to have a lot more success. Hi, Dan. I'm calling in reference to episode 434, the guy who just doesn't know who to be angry at about the fact that he has a hall pass and can't get laid or whatever. Um, and I think you left out something crucial from your advice to him, and that is homewrecker syndrome. Now, obviously, in this particular situation, the guy has a hall pass, whatever, but how often, whether it's in personal friendships or the media or, you know, whatever, First of all, do guys lie about that? Oh, yeah, my girlfriend totally said I could have sex with other people, okay? Open relations are not are still kind of underground and whatever. And I think that a lot of women are afraid that, you know, okay, well, I sleep with this guy who had a hall pass, but what if his girlfriend gets mad at it? Or what if it's so good it becomes a regular thing and then they break up and then I'm going to be the one who's blamed for their relationship ending because every time a married couple breaks up because of infidelity on the husband, on a straight man's husband's part or boyfriend's part. It's the other woman who gets blamed for it, that she's the whole wrecker. Histories of men lying and also fear of being the home wrecker is part of why this is more difficult for men. Hi, Dan. Just a comment for that dried up old lesbian that is concerned about dating a younger girl. Uh, my boyfriend's 10 years younger than I am. I'm 36. He's 26. I was really unsure for a while. And the way I figured out that he was the right guy for me was by checking out other dudes. He just didn't 
get exclusive at first. And I continued to online date and see other people that were more my age and more financially stable. And well, you know what? A year and a half later, that 26-year-old is the one I want to be with. So don't write her off yet. (laughs) And if you're really not sure, go check it out. Um, There's a good chance you'll be coming back to her. I realized my boyfriend was the one I wanted to hang out with by comparing him to others. And we're going to leave it there. 206-201-2720 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-201-2720. A quick thanks to uh, everyone at the Awesome Etiquette Podcast from the Emily Post Institute. Thank you for the kind words and the shout-outs recently for me and my podcast and my column. Really appreciate it. Hump is coming up in Los Angeles. Hump is the Pacific Northwest's biggest, best, and only amateur porn film festival. It is selling out in San Francisco and Philadelphia. There are tickets available for L.A., so if you are blocked out in San Francisco, get on an airplane and go to Los Angeles. But if you're in L.A., you can come and join us at the Downtown Independent Theater for Hump. You're going to love it. It's terrific. It's one of the best Hump tours ever. Go to humptour.com for information about the show, about the screenings, and about the festival here in Portland. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Amy Muse on Twitter at Amy Muse. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at Risk Youth and Nancy. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. 